And as we open up the word, Lord, we, we ask that you would cause this story that many of us have heard so many times and allow it to be fresh, that we would look at the giants in our lives, that we wouldn't run away, but that we would run to those giants because of who you are and that you would bring a great breakthrough. We pray for our missions team that is headed out today to go to Chihuahua and we pray that you'd really bless them and use that missions trip. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. We also have 34 people that left today to go to Chihuahua for a missions trip so you can pray for them. That is a very large missions team so we're excited to send them out. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. We left off in verse 31. 1 Samuel 17, verse 31. The battle is the Lord's part two. Last week was part one. If you were with us, we had three main points, three things that we saw that we studied. The first was that the enemy's main weapon is fear and intimidation. Do you remember that? We spent quite a bit of time talking about that, how the enemy wants to get us into that place of fear and intimidation, that David understood the real battle, that he understood that this was about God's glory also, we discussed that critics will arise close to home. As David began to express God's heart to defeat this giant, his brother, his oldest brother, came against him. And this week, we're gonna finish up the second half of the story, David and Goliath. This is one of the most well-known and well-loved stories in all of history. Everybody loves an underdog story. We kind of root for it. When we're watching the movies, a lot of movies are about the underdog and the underdog coming to, to this place of having victory. And this is that ultimate story, this young shepherd boy, teenage boy going up against probably the greatest warrior in all the land, in all of the world at this time. And God brings about the great victory. However, with this being such a well-known and famous story, it can become just a little bit more than frozen in our imagination. You know, the Disney movie. I'm not gonna sing any of these songs for you, but with three daughters, I do know them. I, I could sing them uh, for you, but I will spare you the pain and spare me the embarrassment. But it almost becomes a, a little bit more than fairy tale status. You know, it, it's easy to go to that you know, Charlie Brown's a teacher, wah, 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 and we kind of get through the, the Bible study. And this is a couple of things I want you to pray about and consider tonight, is what are the reproaches to the people of God? What's causing the people of God to live in bondage the way that Goliath was living in bondage? What is it that comes out on the stage that causes us to go back in fear that God would wanna do a great breakthrough? And I think that you can probably feel it in the life of our fellowship is God is doing something. He's stirring us, he's, he's speaking to us. And I, I get a hunch that it's not just in our church, that throughout our land that God is stirring our hearts and, and he's saying, now's the time. I don't want my people to be in bondage. I don't want my people to be in captivity that Jesus came to set the captives free, that he's the one who defeats the giants. And then to begin to look at the giants in our lives through the lens of who God is. Because it's very easy to run in fear instead of facing the giants, facing those difficulties to see God bring about 
of victory. I bet there's at least two things in all of our lives that if we're honest, we're struggling to believe if God could bring the victory. Maybe it's a struggle with sin that we've had for years and it's a reproach to us. And we have a hard time believing that God could really set us free and bring a victory in our lives. Maybe it's a situation, a challenge, a, a difficulty, and we've, we've pretty much accepted that it's always going to, to be this way. And subconsciously, we've been running away from the fight. We've been running away from the battle. It's been a long time since we've engaged, and God's wanting to awake us and stir us in that way. So verse 31 Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. David's speaking words of faith, and words of faith they resound, especially when the atmosphere is one of fear. When everybody's in this place of dismay and discouragement and talking of fear, all of a sudden it's going to resound with great decibels at a great volume level when someone starts to come and speak that, why are you allowing this guy to be a reproach to God's people. The living God, God is able to defeat this giant. And David had begun to speak this way, and now it gets to Saul. We know it's at least been 40 days that Saul, or excuse me, Goliath, has been coming out to beg for someone to fight him. So I bet Saul's pretty interested that someone is beginning to speak differently. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. This is pretty bold, isn't it? You get this teenage boy, this shepherd boy, and he comes in and he says, I don't want anybody to sweat this. I don't want anyone's heart to fail because of this. Because God's going to bring about this victory. And then he says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. This is the first time that David volunteers himself for the fight. He says, I'll go do this. If nobody else is willing to do this, then send me in to be able to defeat this giant. The confidence that he had in the Lord. And this fascinates me because we do have Saul, we have all of the warriors, the army of Israel, all living in fear. Not one man who's willing to face the giant. But here's David saying, okay, let's do this. And that's what God's waiting for. A lot of times through scripture, God doesn't work through the majority, does he? He doesn't work through a huge mass of people. He, he works through one person that's willing, one person that's available, one person that's willing to see the giants a little bit differently. What is it with giants and God's people? Remember when the children of Israel came to the promised land the first time? The spies go in, there was 12. Only two spies saw the giants through the lens of who God is. Remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 were completely freaked out, afraid, to the point where they could influence all of the congregation of Israel. Words of faith resound, but also words of fear resound. We're grasshoppers. They're looking at themselves instead of looking at who who God is. It's the same way in our lives. We look at these difficulties. We look at these challenges. There's no way. But then there'll be one. There'll be one that will say, yeah, I believe that God can do this. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for your youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So quite the contrast. David, you're young. You're just a shepherd boy. You're a teenager. And what do we know of Goliath? 
well, he's a proven warrior. He's not young, and he's been kicking people's cans since he was young. David, this isn't a good idea for you to go out there. Oftentimes, youth is a disqualifier in people's minds to be used by God. Oh, he's young. There's no way that he can do this. But throughout the scriptures, and also throughout church history, God uses young people. I want to speak to you if you're in that category, if you're a person that is on that younger spectrum here tonight. I'm so blessed that that you're here. And I want you to hear that God wants to use your youth. How do we know this? Because we see of men like Joseph in the scriptures. He was young and God used him in his youth to raise him up to be the deliverer for the children of Israel. Second in command to Pharaoh. Daniel was a young man when he was taken captive. Talk about a difficult situation out of his homeland, taken into Babylon, forced into slavery, God uses him in that condition. Maybe you say, I'm young, I'm single, there's no way that anyone's gonna listen to me, and God's raising up these examples throughout scripture. Jeremiah was young. God spoke into his youth and said, I don't want you to be fearful of their faces, the people that you're talking to. Timothy was given the mantle of pastoring for the Apostle Paul in the church of Ephesus when he was young. And he writes to this young preacher and he says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to the believers. And that's the challenge to you young people is don't let someone check you off the list because you're young, but earn the respect by being an example to the believers. Charles Spurgeon the Prince of Preachers, he was 19 years old when he started senior pastoring, what we would consider to be senior pastoring. You're going, okay, well maybe it was a church of about 50 people, I can understand that. It was in London, the largest Baptist church in London at the time that had a great heritage of very successful and effective communicators, but the church was starting to dwindle and they handed it over to a 19-year-old that had only been saved for four years. He was converted to Christ at age 15. He starts preaching at age 19, and within the first few months of him leading that church, the church began to grow, and people came to know Christ as their Savior. As you look at what's taken place throughout the Middle East over the last two to three years, which we call the Arab Spring, which in a lot of ways has brought in a lot of problems, more difficulties than than good, but how was that movement really started? It was started by young people. The revolution was started by young people, and I think a lot of times they didn't even understand who was gonna take advantage of them, but they were the ones risking their lives. It began in Egypt. You remember the masses of young people taking to to the streets. There's something powerful about youth. I think we can, if we're not so young, we can remember back to that time when we were young and we were much more apt to think that God could defeat the giants, weren't we? We were much more forward thinking. There was a little bit more ambition in our step. The best time for you to start serving the Lord is right now, don't wait. God wants to use your youth. And then for us that aren't so young, as we look at young people, it's easy to dismiss them, isn't it? And go, well, they don't have anything to say. What what could they teach me? They're, They're so wet around the years, they probably only have to shave like twice a week, you know? What do, you, what do you know? And then God is saying, 
I want to use them in your life. We always want to be in that place where we're teachable, where we're not checking somebody off the list because they're young. And Saul says to David, you can't do this. You're just too young. David, once again, could have said, okay. Just like he could have been discouraged by his older brother, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. Notice the humility in David. He's confident in the Lord, but he's not arrogant. He says, your servant. He addresses himself to Saul as a servant. He says, when I was keeping my father's sheep, there was a lion and a bear that came to take a lamb. I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. That's cool right there. That's just burly. David's not one of these shepherds that's like, well, it's just one lamb. We'll we'll go ahead and and let the bear have this one. We'll let the lion have this one. At least I'm safe. He's a good shepherd pointing to Jesus. He's laying down his life for the sheep. He's risking his life for the sheep. So he goes out and grabs this beast by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Notice this pattern of how God raises people up for his purposes as they're faithful where they're at. You want to see the Goliaths fall in your life and in this world? Then be faithful with the lion and the bear. That's where David started. If you're not faithful with the lion and the bear, then there's not going to be a proven track record to be able to step up to the Goliath. And a lot of times we want the Goliath. We want the big opportunity. We want the nine foot six guy. And God's saying, well, will you protect this lamb? Will you stand up to the lion? Will you stand up to the bear? Be faithful right where, 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 where. could I buy a vowel, please? (laughs) Er, whatever. Verse 37, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Remember past victories when in present danger. Remember past victories in present danger. David's not looking back at his own skill with the lion and the bear. That that would be an easy way for an unbeliever to write about this story. He's trusting in his own skill set because he had defeated the lion and the bear. But notice what's emphasized. The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. He's saying, these were victories that God gave to me. God delivered me from this. And he's the same God that's going to defeat this big giant, this beast of a man. Do you know well the bears and the lions in your life? Do you remember a very difficult season that you didn't think you were going to make it through and God delivered you? You want to journal that? You want to write that down? You want to remember it? And when you're facing a Goliath, you go back to that journal, you go back to that prayer time, you go back to those conversations, you say, God, you got me through this. And so you're the one who delivered me from that lion in my life, that bear in my life. I know you're going to deliver me from this Goliath. 
I suggest to you that God's already done something that's much bigger than a lion and a bear. Because it's easy to look at this and go, well, you know, I haven't really wrestled a lion or wrestled a bear or any of those, those kind of things. But God's already delivered you from the penalty of your sin. Amen? You're forgiven. God's accomplished something so much greater, the greatest miracle of all times, that we can sit here tonight and know that we're justified. We're declared righteous by God. So we look back on God's deliverance that's resulted in our salvation. We go, I'm the child of God. Since I'm the child of God, I know that God will be faithful with this Goliath that's facing me. That's what's so important about communion. We're looking back at God's deliverance and we're going, God, you died for me. You sent your son to die for me. I'm forgiven. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. So I know that you're gonna be faithful, present tense in my life this evening. Paul put it this way. We just studied this, this last Wednesday night. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, He delivered us from such a great death. He will deliver us again. Of him who set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. He's delivered us in the past. He's delivering us presently, confident that he's working in our situation, and we know that he will continue to deliver in the future. Have you ever thought that God's allowing a lion and bear in your life to prepare you for the Goliath? And it's not some kind of mean trick from God. God's wanting to declare his glory. He wants to show that he's bigger than Goliath. So he's saying, okay, I'm gonna allow your car to break down and for you to not have the money to be able to get it fixed. And I'm gonna show myself faithful in this season of your life so that you'll be prepared for something even more difficult that comes down the road. He's working, he, he's preparing. And we hold on to those lessons. What he's shown us in the light, we don't doubt in the dark. Remember past victories when in present danger. Verse 38, so Saul, he said yes. We've got to commend Saul that he's going to let David do this. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had, and his sling, which was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. Use what you have tested. Use what you have tested. Saul's probably feeling bad for this guy, David, this young man, David. Oh, I appreciate his heart. But he doesn't have any armor. He's going to be a sitting duck. We know that David was Saul's armor bearer. How many times did David look at Saul and go, man, that's an awesome sword. Remember, there was only two swords in all of Israel at this time. Look at that armor. That's a pretty fancy helmet. I wonder what that feels like. I wonder what it would be like to swing that, that sword. It's in the heart of every boy, isn't it? It's in the heart of every man. Come on, let, let's be honest. And now here's his moment, and he's got Saul's armor. He's got the king's armor. It'd be very easy for him to go, yeah, I'm going to give this a try. This would have been a complete disaster if he would have went out there with Saul's armor. He can't walk in it. 
It doesn't fit him. He hasn't tested it. He's not familiar with it. It's not proven in his life. And church, I think that this is one of the most practical things if we're gonna see victory in our lives, if we're gonna see God use us, is we have to be who God has made us to be. David is uniquely equipped by God to defeat this giant Goliath. This sling and stone is the perfect aerial weapon to defeat this big guy. Goliath has immense armor, immense strength. You go to -to hand-to-hand combat with Goliath, you're gonna lose every time. But if you can launch a stone from a distance away and perfectly hit in the forehead, God wanted to do something different. God wanted to do something unique. And David was equipped for this. And so he used what he tested. And that's what scripture says here. He used what was familiar to him. He used what he was good at. He gets his shepherd's staff. How many times had he picked up that shepherd's staff? Can you picture it in your mind? I bet he's rubbed his hands upon it. Maybe it's got a little bit of blood on it from that lion and the bear. Maybe there were some times that he was bored and so he carved his initials into this this staff, played ninja warrior with the staff a few times, did some Jedi moves as he's out in, in the field. Now he's got his pouch where he goes down to the brook and he gets five smooth stones. Again, to me, this shows the confidence that David has in the Lord. If I was David, I would have been going for at least 25 smooth stones. Can I get 50? Can I get 50 smooth stones somewhere? He just takes five. Some have speculated, well, why did he use five smooth stones? Well, we know that Goliath had four brothers that were also giants as well. Maybe he was thinking, I'll go get those guys next. Who knows? There's no reason to know why he chose five. Maybe he could only five five good stones. But to me, it shows his confidence in the Lord. As he was spending time with the sheep, I bet out of almost sheer boredom, he would be taking his sling and doing some target practice over and over and over again. It's hard to estimate how many shots that he had taken with the slingshot. It was tested in his life. Don't try to be somebody else. Don't try to use their tools. Don't try to talk like them. Don't try to emulate their personality. You be who God wants you to be. You use what is proven in your life. One of the things I think that happens in the life of a church is it's easy for pastors and leaders in a church to look at what's happening at some other church and go, wow, that's really cool. Look at what they're doing. Look at Saul's armor. And all of a sudden, we try to go get Saul's armor, and we put it on, and we start swinging Saul's sword, and then everybody around us can see they're not being authentic. They're not being genuine. They're trying to be like someone else, and it's not effective. And God's raised up a particular church in a specific location to reach the people that he wants to reach through the gifts and talents and callings that he has given to them. It's very easy to feel this pressure, like we've got to be like somebody else. Whether it's pastors, leaders in your own life, it could be in the area of parenting, right? You look at the way that somebody else parents and you go, man, that's dynamite. I got to do it just like them. No, you take biblical principles, the truth of God's word, and you do it inside of who God has made you to be. You got a staff, 
You got a slingshot, you got five smooth stones, that's what's tested in your life, that's what's proven in your life, and guess what? God knew that your kids needed a parent with a personality just like yours. So go with it and trust it. Don't try to be like Dr. Phil, there's only one Dr. Phil, right? You can't do that. You can't be James Dobson. I mean, I don't know how many times I've just dreamed that I could be a parent just like James Dobson's. Maybe if I read his books enough that I could sound just like it to my kids, right? I want to use the principles of God's word that are in the things that Dr. Dobson teaches about parenting, but then it's got to come out in who we are. Don't try to wear somebody else's armor. Use what you have tested. Verse 41 So the Philistines came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. Goliath's a cheater. He gets an extra man. Did you notice that? He's got someone to carry his shield, and so that guy is first. And when the Philistines looked about and saw David, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, he hated him, for he was a youth, ruddy and good-looking. Oh, look at the little baby that they sent out to fight me. And he feels personally offended by this. They, they wouldn't even send one of their best warriors. They sent out the teenage boy, the little baby. And on top of that, he's pretty. He's handsome. Look at his hair. He's got such attractive hair, and it just makes Goliath mad. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks, he's making fun of his shepherd's staff. David doesn't even have a sword. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Do you see how this is an issue of God's glory? It's similar to Mount Carmel with Elijah the prophet, where they were putting Baal as the one true living God. And here's this Philistine, he's cursing David by his false gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will bear your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath is overconfident to the nth degree. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, with spear, and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. David has the greatest weapon, and that's the Lord. He has a weapon that Goliath has no idea of. And he says, you come with your sword, with your spear, with your talent, with your ability, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled. David shows great wisdom to put the Lord between him and the enemy, him and Goliath. And the same is true for us. Stop running from the challenge. Stop running from the defeat. Run towards it because who God is and rely upon the character of God. Jesus taught us to pray in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? In the character and the nature of who Jesus is. You can pray all day long to win the lottery in the name of Jesus, and that's not gonna work. Why? Because that's not along the character and the nature of Jesus. You're like, man, you just ruined my life. You know, I've been praying for that forever. But you know what? You can pray that God would restore your marriage in the name of Jesus because that's in regards to his character and nature. You can pray that God would give you victory over sin in the name of Jesus because that's his character and his nature. You can pray in the name of Jesus over your children that God would give them the revelation of his son because that's in the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. That's putting God between you and the challenge. 
you've got a difficulty with a person at work and you begin to pray over them in the name of Jesus, you're putting the Lord between you and that situation, the Lord of hosts. And, and David does that. In verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass of the camp of the Philistine to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David never once makes this about himself. This wasn't an opportunity for him to write a book on how to slay giants and be the top-selling author and make buco bucks. God's name, God's glory, God's reputation. He wanted to see God defeat Goliath so that God would be glorified, that the whole earth would know that there is a God in Israel. That's where God wants our hearts. Is it about us? Do we want victory over sin so people think that we're a good guy, that we're a good gal, that we're a wonderful this, a wonderful that? Are we wanting God's glory to, to be seen? Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord doesn't save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. As we face the giant, understand that the battle belongs to the Lord's, for the battle is the Lord's. As much as David is uniquely outfitted to defeat this giant Goliath, it wasn't because of David. It wasn't because of his slingshot. It wasn't because of his smooth stone. It was the Lord. God's doing this in such a way that everybody that was there today, that day, would understand this is God's doing. It didn't happen with spear. It didn't happen with a sword. It didn't happen through conventional weapons. God used the weak to reveal his glory. God used a teenage shepherd boy to defeat the best warrior in the known world at this time. The battle belongs to the Lord's. Do you know that? Do you know that the battle belongs to God? We live in some crazy times. They're interesting times. Quite frankly, I'm excited about it. I think the landscape is ripe for a move of God, for God to do a great thing. And in this battle that we face spiritually, it's the Lord's. God's in control. He's on the throne. He's not stressed out. He's not worried about it. He owns the battle. The battle belongs to him. I bet you're in some kind of battle. If not, you will be. I will be. And then when we're in the midst of the battle to say, God, you reign over this. You possess this. You, you own this. This is God's battle. And this is the key. This is how David could have victory because he saw God's power. He saw God's goodness in the particular situation. Turn the battle over to him. God, I'm wrestling with this sin, this struggle. I feel defeated. The battle belongs to the Lord. God, I'm gonna start looking to you to deliver me. I can't deliver myself. I've tried and I've failed. God, it feels like my marriage is getting defeated. Have you turned that over to the Lord? God, would you bring a breakthrough that only you can bring? Haven't you found that so many times that's what God's waiting for? He's waiting for the surrender. He's waiting for the trust. God, this is yours. This is what it looks like a lot of times in my life. I get myself really wore out before I get to this point. I usually try all my own resources, try all my own good ideas, try to figure out the best solution. Then after not sleeping for a period of time, my wife usually leans over and says, you know what, Eric, God's got this. This is the Lord's. You don't have to worry about it. Oh, babe, you're right. 
You're right. I'm, I'm going to give this over to the Lord. God, I'm going to place this in your hands. And then that's the moment that God works. I'll save you the details, but there's been several instances in my life where I've been hindering God's work in our family and in our life because I'm not giving it over to the Lord. I'm still trying to do it myself. And then when I got to the place of surrender, I put it in his hands. That's when we began to see the Lord work. Understand the battle belongs to the Lord. Let's finish up the chapter. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. I love this. He runs towards the giant instead of running away. Here comes Goliath, and Goliath starts trucking, and here comes David. I bet you they're both screaming, and David's probably swinging at this point. He's getting ready. He's going to fire. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank in his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. Maybe it's a guy thing, but I, I would love to see this. Any guys, are you with me on this? Like, like full-on visual. I want to know how far the stone went into his head. Must have had some speed. Remember Goliath's armor? It would be hard to penetrate this armor, but you've got to be able to see. So in his armor, in his helmet, there's a vulnerability there, and that's exactly where God wins the victory. And he falls face forward, and he's almost 10 feet tall, and he's, he's, he's done for. God wins this victory. Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and a stone. See, the emphasis is not upon David, but it's actually upon weakness and how God did this through weakness for his own glory and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Did it without even a sword. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. This is the part that they never would tell us in Sunday school. I grew up going to Sunday school, and I, I heard the story of David and Goliath, and they, they left out the best part. They left out the part that David goes and gets Goliath's sword and then lops off his head. And as we'll continue reading it, then he starts carrying around his head as a trophy, this big, huge, massive head. And I, I just love that, you know? If you've got young boys, elementary age boys, you need to tell them this part. Dads, it's your duty to share this with them. All of a sudden, you know, the Bible's going to go for a little sissy book for sissies, and they're going to go, wow, this is awesome. This is incredible. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And I want you to hear this tonight, is we fight from a position of victory. The champion's already been defeated, and that's Satan. The champion's already been defeated, and that's sin. The champion's already been defeated, and that's death. All of that happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan knows that he's been defeated. So we don't have to go through our lives wondering, has the giant been defeated? Jesus, the greater than David, has already done it for us. And the enemy's running in fear. That's why we have to stand our ground in Jesus Christ. Verse 52, 
Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell among the road to Shemar, even as far as Gath and Ekron. The agreement was whoever lost, that you would get the whole army. But once Goliath is defeated, now these men are running for their lives. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistine and plundered their tents. And here you have it. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Wants everyone to see this trophy. But he put his armor in his tent. David keeps the armor of Goliath. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And and Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. What's humorous to me about this is it's like almost like a trophy fish that a young boy, once he catches, is going to take with him everywhere. Because he's already taken the head with him to Jerusalem. Now he's still got Goliath's head with him as he goes in to talk with Saul. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered and said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So you can read this and you go, well, it seems like this is a first introduction for David and Saul, but we know from the prior chapter that David had come and played the harp for Saul. So what does this mean at the end of this chapter is now Saul is paying a lot more attention to David. That David could come in and play the harp for Saul and Saul hardly even noticed him, hardly even paid attention to him. But now that he has defeated Goliath, he's like, who are you? And Abner's asking, who are you, the commander of the army? Well, yeah, I'm the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So I want to ask a few questions to pray through and consider before we go home tonight. And the first is, or what are the defeated lions and bears in your life? What are the defeated lions and and bears in your life? Has God been faithful in a a season of difficulty in your marriage? And and that's a lion and, and a bear. Was there a a time that was very challenging financially and God saw you through? Was there a time where you were facing depression and it was just a dark pit and you didn't know if you'd ever come through it and God God was faithful? Was there a a difficult time in a relationship and a friendship and it hurt deeply and God brought restoration? It's a lion, it's a bear. Was there a time that you were praying for someone who was an unbeliever and you thought they would never get saved and they came to know Christ as their Savior, that's a lion, that's a bear. Write that down, know that. You want to know that very well. So when the Goliath comes, you can articulate to yourself and others, this is how I've seen God's faithfulness in my life. God's done this with the lion. He's done this with the bear. I know that he'll be faithful when it comes to the Goliath. And the greatest lion, the greatest bear, the greatest giant is that God's forgiven us from our sins. If he never did anything else in our lives for us, that's far greater than any lion or any bear. Amen? So remember that. Remember how you came to know Christ. Remember the condition of your heart and how God drew you to Christ. It's your lion. It's your bear. And then what are the tools that you've tested? What are the tools that you've tested? David had tested a slingshot, a shepherd's staff. 
He knew how to use it. He was familiar with it. Never in David's wildest imagination did he think that that would be used to deliver the whole nation of Israel and defeat Goliath. Are you really good at playing the guitar and that's tested in your life? God wants to use that for his glory. Are you great with a pencil and crunching numbers and you can do amazing things with finances? You're gifted with it. You've always been at a young age. That's a tested tool in your life and God wants to use it. Are you dynamite with a computer? Man, you could change the world with a computer. You're tested with a computer. Maybe you're not so good at getting up and talking in front of people. It would be like putting on Saul's armor if you had to do that. But you could sit behind a computer and you can think of ways for people to get reached for the love of Jesus Christ. Somebody was thinking when they came up with global media outreach and provided an avenue where people could search about Jesus Christ and then be able to chat with someone else online with their questions instantly about Jesus Christ. It's like someone coming to your door and knocking on your door and saying, is Jesus God? Would you answer the door? That was some computer geek nerd that had a tested tool in his life, right? And he used it for for God's glory. Maybe you're great as a mechanic, and that's what you do every day. That's what's in your hand. That's your tested tool. That's what God wants to use to defeat giants in this land. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. That is the hardest job on the planet and the most worthwhile And what's the tested tool in your life are all of those tasks that come with investing in those kids. That's what God wants to use for his glory. What's in your hand? God wants to use what's in your hand. Don't envy what's in somebody else's hand. That's easy to do, isn't it? Man, I I would love to be good at the guitar. I'd love to be good at graphics design. Man, I would die to do accounting. No, what does God put in your hand? Okay, There it is. What's the tested tool? What's the tested tool? And then lastly, who owns the battle? Really, who owns the battle? Who owns the battle? I think that there's a lot of things that are bringing reproach to God's people, not just here, but throughout our land. There's believers that love the Lord that are addicted to heroin, and they don't want to tell anybody. And it's the Goliath in their life. And they're ashamed. They don't know how they got there. And it's a reproach. It's the Goliath. And God sees it, and he's saying, I'm ready to do work. There's people that are in bondage to alcohol. They can't go through a day without drinking. It's how they function. It's how they relax. It's how they sleep. They can't stop. They're trying to stop. They can't stop. And it's a reproach to God's people, and they don't want to say anything. They don't want to face it. They've tried, and they failed, and tried, and they failed. And and sexual sin, it's a reproach to God's people. Sitting on my desk is Time Magazine, and it asks this question, is monogamy something of the past? They're suggesting that it doesn't even exist in our culture anymore. And throughout our land, God's people are longing to be free from pornography, longing to be free from sexual sin, 
sleeping around before marriage and being unfaithful in marriage. And there's so much defeat that people are starting to ask the question, could you live a life of purity? Could it be, could it be any different? Anger is a reproach to God's people. There's domestic violence that takes place. There's people that lead Bible studies, lead people to Christ, are effective worship leaders, great evangelists, women's ministry leaders, men's ministry leaders, Sunday school teachers, missionaries, and they go home and they treat their spouse in a way that breaks God's heart and they raise their hand in anger. And there's abuse that's taking place and it's a reproach to, to God's people. Anger has gotten the, the foothold. It's the Goliath. And God's saying, this is so much more than a fairy tale. This is so much more than just a past story that doesn't apply to our lives. And he's looking for David's. He's looking for David's that see this through the lens of who God is. What sexual sin compared to a resurrected savior? The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. Christ can enable us to live a life of fidelity, a life of purity. It's possible. Heroin, marijuana, what, did he just say marijuana? Yeah, it's legal, but it's not biblical. It's bringing God's people into bondage. Alcohol. What's that compared to a resurrected Savior? And maybe you're in that place tonight, and you're saying, that's me. I can't let go of these things. I can't let go of the drugs. I can't let go of the alcohol. Instead of running away from the giant, run to the giant day after day, and crying out that God would bring deliverance, to begin to open up, to break that code of secrecy, to allow other believers to pray with you and to, to pray for you and to see God bring down the giants. Because we live in a land that needs to know that there's a living God, amen? And they need to see it because somebody's walking around with Goliath's head. Not out of pride and not out of arrogance, but out of this is who God is. Could it be that there would be a marriage that would reflect Christ in the church? Could God do it? Well, the same spirit that lives in you rose Christ from the dead. Could there be a 19-year-old in our fellowship that will be the next Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers? It's very possible. God could do it. He's ready to do a work. But for us to ask that question, what is it that's reproaching God's people? What is it that's reproaching us as believers in this fellowship? What's a reproach in my life? And looking to the Lord and saying, God, I'm tired of running away. You're the living God, and for your glory, you can defeat the giants. Father, we come before you, and we believe that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, this isn't something that we can conjure up, that we can cook up. It only can be a work of your spirit. But we're asking, we're asking in Jesus' name that you would defeat the giants in our lives, 
that you would defeat the giants in this fellowship, the things we don't want to talk about, the things that we don't want to look at, that we don't even want to pretend that they exist, but they exist. God, would you bring freedom? If there's those tonight that are in that place of drug addiction and alcohol and addiction to pornography and sexual sin, God, would you bring freedom? Would you defeat that giant? Lord, where there's a bondage to fear and worry and anger and anxiety and depression, God, would you defeat that giant? Would you do that work that that only you can do? God, we are living in desperate times and we're asking that you would do what only you can do. You know your heart. You know how God's speaking to you. Would you take a moment to respond to the Lord? Cry out for that giant that's in your life. Cry out to the Lord for the giant that you see in our land and ask that God would work. Also ask that God would show you what's in your hand. What's the proven tool that he's given you to be used for his glory? God, as a church family, in Jesus' name, we declare that you own the battle. Jesus, you own the battle. It belongs to you. Amen.